Genre. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Liz Lemon from the sitcom 30 Rock. And joining us for this for the discussion is returning guest, Kevin Helps. Welcome back, Kevin. Hello, thank you. So glad to have you on. And uh, last time, I, I think it was last time we had you on, we were talking about Peasley from The Office. So the female uh, lead characters from early 2000 sitcoms is right in your wheelhouse. You're darn right. That's that's what I that's what I talk about. That's who I am. You're you're a sitcom lead, and I never knew it. I'm a female sitcom lead from the early 2000s. It's uh, tough to believe, but here we are. Okay. Well, for anyone who does not know 30 Rock, it was created by Tina Fey and aired on NBC from 2006 to 2013. It is set behind the scenes at a sketch comedy show and is inspired by Tina Fey's time writing and performing on Saturday Night Live. It starred Tina Fey as Liz Lemon, Tracy Morgan as Tracy Jordan, Jane Krakowski as Jenna Maroney, and Alec Baldwin as Jack Donahue. Now, we always ask the question how we came to it. And Kevin, I'm going to be completely honest for you. You sent me three episodes that you recommended. These are the first three episodes of 30 Rock I've ever seen. That's, you know, you warned me of that. And so that that gives me pretty, pretty broad movement to move around on what I say happens in the rest of the series. And just hopefully none of your listeners have watched this iconic comedy. So you're going to make up the, the middle sections between season two and season seven, which are uh, two of the episodes we covered. We, we cover one from season one, yeah, one from season two, one from season seven. Okay. You'll, you'll also, fill in those I, I love that you said Donaghy because there's actually an episode that revolves around the pronunciation of his name. And how is it uh, supposed to be pronounced? Donaghy. Donaghy. Okay. Yeah. But that is that is a matter of some disagreement in the Donaghy family, as you learn in the episode. All right. I, I apologize to Jack that I mis, mispronounced that. Um, I knew some of the cast. I've maybe seen like a few minutes here and there of the show. And I'm you know familiar with the comic stylings of Tina Fey and Alec Baldwin. And um, mm. immediately like watching it, it was what I expected from those two as those two characters, even though I never really sat and watched an episode of the show. So wait, how are they in something else together? No, it just it felt right that this was Tina Fey and Alec Baldwin playing off each other in the, in that style. <laughs> it just just was exactly what I expected. Okay, that's fair. Because yeah. yeah, no, I so Thirty Rock was my introduction to Tina Fey, who has been added to the uh, exclusive list of my writing crushes, uh, which is people whose writing I have a crush on. I don't know if I needed to explain that, um, but that was now. You don't need to I've explain seen... the concept, but I would like to hear at least another two or three names that are on your writing crush list. Obviously, Michael Schur. Uh, absolutely, I think um, he's at. He's near the top of my writing crush list. And I'm going to be straight with you. Uh, Mindy Kaling was on there, but I I was not a big fan of the Mindy Project. Um, and so I don't know. It's That's why they say never meet your heroes. <laughs> that, that, that was your moment. We're like, ah, oh, I got too close to the sun right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, I love the idea of Mindy Kaling. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, she's a good writer she's a good writer but I, I i just the the mindy project didn't didn't toot my horn I mean, that's fine i you know what I, I can't say that every writer that i have on a writer's crush list I, i'd love every project they've ever been involved in that that's a lot to ask 
Yeah, fair enough. Um, those were all uh, comedy writers. Do you have any non-comedy writers that you uh, that you include in that list? I mean, William Shakespeare. <laughs> and I, I know that that's also a cop out noted answer. Noted for several comedies. <laughs> uh, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. But I only like sad Shakespearean stories. <laughs> Who doesn't um, love Midsummer or Much Ado? Come on now. No, okay, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Uh, let's see. Non-comedy writers that I have crushes on. Obviously, I have many because I'm so very well read. Um, uh, Brent Weeks doesn't write comedy. He's a good writer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Brandon Sanderson, even though I think you would have like, if you were going to predict my answer, I think you might have said that one. I had it in my head before you, yeah. you said it out loud. Well, and here's the thing. And I sure hope. Brandon doesn't listen to your podcast. I have had a hard time with the way of Kings. I have not been engaged by it the way I was by Mistborn and by some of the earlier stuff. Okay. I'm just going to go ahead and say, I think you're safe. Okay. As far as Brandon listening to this. I'm episode. sorry, Brandon. Um, okay. Uh, you know what? I didn't mean to put you on the spot there. And I'm sorry. We've gone a little far afield. What is your introduction to 30 rock? So 30 Rock, uh, I think your your introduction was pretty good. It's basically TNFA writing about backstage at SNL. Um, and, and she takes what characters who I really hope are based on actual personalities she knew. And I suspect might be. I don't, I don't know how well the timelines line up, but sometimes I wonder if Jenna Maroney is based on Cecily Strong. But I hope Cecily Strong doesn't listen to your podcast. <laughs> Once again, but sorry, I, I'm confident we're in a safe space for you to say that. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so it's it's sort of fun because um, Scott Dicker's I, actually I'd be talked, delighted oh, to be proven wrong. Yeah, yeah, Cecily, I love you. Um, so Scott Dicker's talked about this, and I thought it was something interesting. Where uh, c- comedic archetypes, where he talks about how Liz Lemon is based on sort of this slob. Um, character that you would typically see put on male characters in comedies. And so they they take a lot of sort of stereotypical male comedic lead attributes and they put it on a female lead. And the result, I think, is actually really interesting. And I I, I don't know how much we're going to get into it in the podcast, but I think 30 Rock does an interesting job of challenging assumptions you have about comedy and, and making you look at things through a new perspective. I mean, this is our chance to get into it, so I, I think we will. Let's get into it. Were you watching 30 Rock when it originally aired? Not at all. Um, so I found it on Netflix. It was referenced to me as a witty comedy. Um, referenced, referred. You know how Netflix does the thing. Um, mm-hmm. I've heard people talking about it since it was on the air, but um, I always I always thought that they were talking about Third Rock from the Sun. Um, and so there's probably some sort of like trademark lawsuit that should happen there because obviously, um, obviously those are, are treading on each other's toes. Um, but yeah, no, I, I watched it on Netflix. It, it binges pretty well, um, for its age. I think it binges pretty well. And yeah, I think I drifted a field from the question, but answer. Uh, no, you're just fine. So you, as far as this discussion goes, you'll be the expert because you've actually watched the entire series. Booyah. Uh, all right. 
So a little bit of trivia. I just pulled up a few things. So 30 Rock won three Emmys for Outstanding Comedy Series, and it was nominated in that category every year that it was on the air. In 2009, it was nominated for 22 different Emmys, the most ever for a comedy. And in total, it was nominated for 103 Emmy Awards and 116. Uh, the season it premiered, NBC ordered two different series about behind-the-scenes stories of a late-night sketch show. Are you familiar with this, Kevin? No. So one was 30 Rock, and the other was Aaron Sorkin's hour-long drama, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, starring Bradley Whitford coming off of uh, West Wing. And, uh, oh, I'm forgetting, uh, Friends cast. One of, the, one of the Friends cast. Uh, <laughs> Matthew, uh, no, no. What, what are their names? Oh. Uh, I, I know they're in-character names. Yeah, I don't David know Friends Schwimmer, cast. Rachel Not Aniston. Not that one. The one who plays Monica. Not that one. Lisa Kudrow. Not that Matthew Perry. That's what we're looking for. I, I just got it. I was, and I'm I was sorry to it. every listener who was. Who was but yeah, so I had Bradley Whitford and uh, Matthew Perry uh, coming off of West Wing and Friends and Aaron Sorkin as the writer. Um, and it was an hour long drama behind the scenes show set on basically SNL. Huh. Um, and that was called Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. Initially, no one expected NBC to pick up both pilots. Then they ordered both pilots and ordered both the series. And then like everyone was saying, well, there's no way I, both of these are going to last. Um, and in the end, uh, Studio 60 uh, lasted one season and 30 Rock ran for seven seasons and 139 episodes. Now, some of that is because of the cost of an hour long drama and the cost of the talent that was so established with yeah. uh, Studio 60. Um, it, in its first season, Studio 60 outrated uh, 30 Rock, but 30 Rock was much cheaper to produce. So it was easier for NBC to say, we're going to give 30 Rock a, a longer life and see see if it finds its audience versus Studio 60, which had a larger audience, but it wasn't enough to, to warrant a second season at the cost that it had. If I were a better person, I would have put Aaron Sorkin on my writer crush list. Um, not because I forgot about him, but because I couldn't make it through West Wing. Sorry, Aaron. Well, which where, when did you leave West Wing? <laughs> I think he, I, he famously leaves in season after season four. Uh, I think I made it maybe to episode two. Oh, Although my. I okay. did like I did like. So I already I already knew this. Um, a trope this 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 attribute of aaron sorkin where you have two characters walking through a long single shot and a lot of business happening around them while they talk that's sort of like an yeah, aaron sorkin that, that was codified as a sorkinism on the west wing yeah 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 so i did enjoy those parts explicitly and exclusively <laughs> oh the west wing is the first tv show we talked about on the protagonist podcast it is one of my favorites uh -huh. well i have a writer crush on the protagonist podcast Oh, well, that is the nicest thing anyone has ever said to me. <laughs> well, before we move on to the summary, <laughs> listeners, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening, and especially thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. Now on to the spoiler summary of these three episodes. Uh, and I will just say, because we're talking about Liz Lemon, I trimmed out the B-plots in my summarizing, and I don't bounce around between them, which the, the show expertly does. It, it handles multiple plots very well in a way that I never feel lost. Writing a summary, bouncing around for like a 30-second scene, that is very funny, but trying to explain in a summary doesn't work. <laughs> so, I think that was wise. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm just trimming it back to, uh, to just the A-plots about Liz in these episodes. So season one, episode eight. Liz Lemon's boyfriend, Dennis, is the worst, except what he's not. But after he invites his cousin and his cousin's great Dane to stay with him at Liz's apartment without her permission, she breaks up with him. But he claims squatter's rights and refuses to move out. 
Liz's friend takes her out to a club to try and meet guys that night. It goes poorly. At work the next day, Dennis comes by to tell Liz that he's moved out and he gives her a heartfelt farewell in front of everyone. Now everyone thinks Liz was wrong to dump him. So Liz makes a list of Dennis's pros and cons. She sees him again and invites him back. But when she turns on the TV that night, she sees Dennis on an episode of To Catch a Predator, and that goes on the con side of the list, and she kicks him out. <laughs> uh, so that is uh, uh, season one, episode eight. Uh, season two, episode 11. Uh, the cast and the, and the crew of uh, the late night show that, that Liz works at, they're all obsessed with the final episode of a summer reality TV show called Milf Island. I will not describe the show other than to say it is wildly caricaturing of every negative stereotype of reality TV in a way that could not be produced for network television, but as a parody, parody <laughs> is horrifying and funny. Jack Donaghy, how do you say I'm supposed Donaghy. to say this? Yeah. Donaghy is desperate to find out who told a reporter that he is a class A moron and that he can eat my poo. So Liz locks her staff in a room <laughs> to find out who gave that quote. Soon alliances and strategies are forming. Uh, Kenneth confronts Liz saying it doesn't add up that any of the staff said this because the word choices aren't their style. And also, oh, I saw you say it to a reporter in the elevator. Uh, and now we flash back and see Liz in an elevator and Kenneth is standing behind a cardboard cutout, not trying to be sneaky. He just happens to be behind a cardboard cutout that he's uh, moving up to a different floor and uh, someone else is on the elevator and Liz vents about her boss and she does not realize that this other person is a reporter. Liz promises, uh, uh, what is his name? Kenneth, that she will go tell Jack. Uh, but when the time comes, she just can't bring herself to do it and she lies. Kenneth is called in and he confesses that he said it to cover for Liz, but then her guilt makes her reveal that she is really the one that said it. Jack says he knows. He just wanted to blackmail her into writing a new series for the winner of the MILF Island <laughs> reality TV show. All right, uh, season seven, episode seven. So this is the final season of the show. Uh, Liz is shocked when she finds out that her horrible ex-boyfriend, Dennis, has adopted a child with his wife. Liz has been on an adoption wait list for years, but because she's single, she keeps getting passed over. Her new boyfriend, Chris, suggests that they get married, and Liz agrees to a low-key wedding at City Hall with no fancy clothes, no guests, and no recognition that this is a special big day. Despite trying not to make it a big deal, nothing goes right on this low-key version of her wedding day until Liz finally decides she actually does want her wedding to be a little bit special. So they take uh, time for her to find a white dress the only one she has is from a princess leia costume but that's fine because she wants to feel like a princess <laughs> and they go and get their friends to be witnesses and liz and chris get married the end when you summarize a half hour sitcom without the jokes <laughs> <laughs> it can really fly by just just uh, sails on by yeah <laughs> yeah i do want to say these were all very funny episodes and i laughed in every single one huzzah Yes. Um, but I, I realized that plot summary might make it seem a little odd and a little offbeat. And it is uh, <laughs> those things. Um, so I want to I want to justify my selection of these episodes. Go on. OK, I just I needed your approval because you could say no. Um, Granted. OK, so um, with Liz, this is a show where I think the lead character has a surprising depth to her arc. Um, and and the, some of the other characters do have uh, good arcs as well, but I think Liz Lemon is rightfully at the front of having a, a well-defined character arc. And so some things I wanted to point out about her is um, the season one episode, I, this is, okay, season one, episode eight, I was reading an article probably on Cracked, but I don't know, um, where they said that this is where 30 Rock actually starts. And I'm inclined to agree with that because when we are led into season one, episode one, um, Tracy isn't really acting like Tracy yet. Uh, Jenna hasn't really found her crazy yet. 
and the relationship between Liz and Jack is not yet established. And so it, it sort of feels like a, a show that's being cast to drift out on the waves. Um, whereas episode eight is where we'd start to see the characters real, who they are in the context of the show starts to really emerge. Um, the other things we, Dennis, I think this is the first time we meet Dennis, but I'm open to being screamed at in the comments. Um, but Dennis is, I would say, Liz's chief antagonist in her arc on how she deals with men. Um, because Liz is constantly trying to find out what her place is as a professional woman, as someone who wants a family. Um, and in her mind, this necessitates having a man in her life. And Dennis is sort of her lowest common denominator, her, her plan C, as it were. Um, and so this is a great introduction of who Dennis is, how he's not, not abusive, but he's, he's thoughtless and, and discourteous and selfish and horrible and how Liz, uh, can be drawn to him. And this isn't the only time when she's kind of drawn to him throughout the show. Um, but it's a good sort of microcosm of her relationship with Dennis. And he does show up in an episode where she gets married. And I think that's absolutely appropriate because he is the villain she needs to vanquish in her arc regarding men. Um, I think that so that's that my, does oh, uh, make, make a lot of sense. Those bookends, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and she does have other arcs that I think are great. But the that one, I think, is a good demonstration of her. Um, the Milf Island, I just think, is genuinely one of the best episodes i really really like it um it does two things that i really like one it shows the way the show uses meta narrative to to make jokes where liz's story uh, parallels the story of deborah um and so i i think the, the show gets into a lot of meta comedy into a lot of meta narratives and so that's that's a great demonstration of it but then it also shows that liz is ruthless when she chooses to be um, and this is an attribute that comes back to her sometimes, and it's wonderful because I think so many times when you have a lead in a sitcom, they're given these not very interesting flaws. I'm air quoting flaws, dear mm -hmm. listener. <laughs> um, but here we see Liz behaving in an unambiguously immoral manner. Um, she is throwing her team under the bus to protect herself, and she sticks to it. Even when Kenneth shows up in the form of her conscience, she sticks to her guns. She is going to protect herself. Everyone else be darned. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and so I, I love that about her because especially in her relationship with Chris, which we explore in the later seasons, um, what season? I think she might be shows up in season seven. Um, we see that that part of her start to kind of melt a little bit as she gets better at supporting other people at her own expense. Um, and I, I'm really oversimplifying it here. But what I love about Milf Island from the perspective of showing Liz uh, Lemon as a character is it shows that she can be brutal and she can be selfish and that she is unrelenting. They don't cop out of these attributes on her. Uh, well, I mean, she does confess in the end. So there is that. <laughs> okay, she does. Fair enough. Fair enough. She does technically relent at the end. But after attempting to do a great deal of damage, you know what? I'm out of here. Yeah. And uh, I, I think some of the most interesting um, character conflicts are those internal conflicts that are feel valid, that she can be both 
uh, ruthless, but then also feel guilty about her ruthlessness. Yeah. <laughs> like she feels driven uh, to to uh, allow her staff to take the blame. To, she feels driven to uh, try and look good for the boss. Um, but she also, you know, do- doesn't want to be that person right. <laughs> you know, entirely. Uh, and it doesn't feel like a contradiction within the character that those lead her to uh, to the choices that she makes. It feels like that's what a multifaceted person has within them. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, and I think it's so hard to do that with characters in fiction um, because I, I honestly think a lot of writers can get lost in the weeds on that, where if you make characters realistic, then they're complex to the point that they almost become bland again. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> or, or it can start to feel muddy. Yeah. Uh, where, where like the side characters on 30 rock are more caricatures than characters, at least from what I saw in these episodes, right there. Yeah. They're that's basically definitely correct. broader, a little more one note uh, in, in the comedy. And I would not expect that kind of, uh, you know, complexity uh, or at least as frequently as what we see with Liz Lemon. Like, like maybe they get a, you know, a, a more focused story a couple times a season where you see that sort of thing. But very often on the episodes, they're there as a splash of color that comes in and you know exactly who they are, what their attitudes are, what their motivations are. And they don't deviate from that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, honestly, I think characters like that have a lot of value too. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I, I think the show up everywhere, especially in comedy uh, where it's sort of a, a great way to sort of, portray our heroes against the backdrop of those characters. And I think sometimes with comedies, when you do have uh, such a, a world that is a step removed from reality, which is what 30 rock is, right? Everyone is a little broader. Um, This is not rooted in like a, a, uh, you know, a a realistic portrayal of life in a writer's room. Right. The the character's going to be broader. It's possible for the main character in order to provide that contrast to become very bland, right? Where they're the straight person to all the chaos of the side characters who like, if you ever really thought about it, you're like, how does this person function as a member of society? (laughs) Um, Right. (laughs) When when the characters become so one note, Uh, but they, in sitcoms, there's definitely huge value in those. And I, what I enjoyed in 30 rock is I didn't feel like Liz Lemon as often the more straight person, the more grounded uh, person Mm -hmm. in a, world of uh the the broader characters she didn't feel flat she didn't feel like she was lost in in uh you know the the bright comedy of the side characters right well and that's something interesting that they they do with her is um first of all 30 rock does something that most comedies do that i don't actually love where occasionally they will just throw a character's attributes under the bus to make a joke and to some extent, I guess you could call it inevitable. I think The Office does a good job of avoiding that pitfall. Um, and 30 Rock does a good job, but not a perfect job. Um, because I do think there are times, I'm trying to think of, I can't think of specific examples from these episodes. So I apologize. This is a deep cut. Anyway, um, <laughs> but the thing is that Liz, on top of having these depth to her attributes, she does have that backdrop of, She's a slob. She has food issues. She has issues with sex. And they, they come up again and again, and there are sort of notes that do get played um, many times, but then we see growth within those overwhelming attributes. I don't, I don't know how to describe it exactly, but it's, it's, it's surprisingly well done. She's a balancing act between a character and a character. And, uh, you know, for comedy, that's a wonderful 
you know, line to walk when you can really nail it. And yeah. I think we've we've all seen shows where either is specific episodes or character arcs overall. Somehow it, it feels like it's teetered one way too far uh, exactly. you know, or the other. Yeah. And, and the balance is off. Um, and again, I've only seen these three episodes, but I thought it was it was hitting those marks pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, if, uh, so, so I think we've done some description of some of her character traits. Where do you think as far as like a, a star or the center of this comedic universe, where is the comedy coming for Liz Lemon besides the excellent name Liz Lemon, which (laughs) right off the bat, you're there. (laughs) And and when you have Alec Baldwin saying lemon, uh, that always works (laughs) as something that is just a little bit of delight in a scene. And then Um, when, when there's a Chinese knockoff of one of her books, her name gets translated as, I think it's citrus sour fruit. (laughs) And so there you go. There's that. Uh, (laughs) uh, And I know there's always the complaint that like analyzing comedy kills, kills the comedy. But I I think from a writer perspective or from someone who's, who's thinking deeply about this, where do you think Liz comedy is found with the character of Liz Lemon? So if, if I'm following the question well enough, then uh, I would say that we, we find comedy in Liz. Actually, I'm going to zoom out a little bit. Um, 30 Rock, what I think it does really well is it does the meta commentary where um, mm-hmm. it's a show about making a show and they do they do sort of lean on those tropes a little bit where a character will say, oh, it's dumb when this happens and then that exact thing will happen. And so they're sort of po- poking fun at their own form. Um, with Liz herself, I think a lot of her comedy comes with her uh, defined expectations you would put on her. And I, I think that that comes back to Uh, her being the slob archetype character um, where you wouldn't expect a character played like Tina Fey to be portrayed as the person who, you know, eats pizza off the floor or no real example, eating a pop tart she found under the couch, which has a (laughs) horrific resolution in that episode. So (laughs) that's you'll reading rainbow style. You'll just have to watch. Um, And so I think a lot of that comes from defying expectations, which I know that's a cop-out answer because all comedy is to an extent defying expectations. But re- uh, yeah, it's about setting them up for two beats and then and then twisting on the third. That's that's the rhythm of a joke. Right. <laughs> and so the, the bones of Liz Lemon are, we've given you this expectation and now we're going to defy it in character form. And then a thousand okay. thousand meta jokes. Yes, I did notice a lot of meta commentary, uh, both about the um the entertainment world not just like working behind the scenes but uh you know nbc and ge and uh, like corporate partnerships and ownerships and all those things uh that that were going on um you definitely sense that like the more familiar you are with the strange nesting dolls of the mega corporations of american industry and Uh entertainment uh there's more jokes there than than you are probably aware of well and that's that's one thing that i think the show does shockingly well i don't know how well it shows i think milf island kind of shows the jack liz relationship really well but um jack is portrayed as the republicans republican um and he has all these stereotypical jokes where he's portrayed as like you know he's super rich he's out of touch he's he's connected to the point that it's it's kind of ridiculous but then while the show definitely has an unsympathetic view of Jack's Republican politics, um, it still portrays Jack as a very sympathetic character. Um, And that is a line that I think Tina Fey walks better than anyone. 
Um, she she portrays political views that the narrative makes clear she disagrees with, and yet she portrays them as coming from human beings. And that I mm. think she writes brilliantly. I know that's more about Jack, but Liz also, it's clear that she is more on the liberal side of the spectrum, and it is also portrayed as a more nuanced view. It's not a good versus evil thing. And that's part of what makes Liz and Jack work. And I think it's also part of why 30 Rock is uh, a more nuanced approach to like portraying political views than other comedies are. Well, even just uh, not, not necessarily political views, but even um, like social issues. I, I just was trying to find it and I cannot find a transcript of the monologue that she gives during the, the wedding episode when she talks about the fact that, in part, she wants it to be a small nothing oh, day because yeah. because she does she doesn't like the what does she call it the industrial wedding complex that is built up and the societal demands that women need to feel you know for, uh, fulfill certain roles and and act certain ways uh, every day of their lives but particularly on their wedding day and she wants to resist that but then she says like but part of me also wants a special day <laughs> and and I think that uh, was a really honest uh, recognition of the the issues that we all face where like there's there's things we 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 feel strongly about and then sometimes you want something that's a little contradictory <laughs> to yeah, that thing yeah and, <laughs> and and you feel like you're betraying yourself to acknowledge what you yourself want well and it, it feels so honest right like i i sincerely mm-hmm. don't know where tina fey falls on the this political spectrum but like there's such a a human honesty to that moment there's an episode shortly after that where she and chris um organize how they're going to be as a family and um they decide the default is that liz should stay at home and chris should go off and work and they both hate those roles and so the episode is them sort of realizing oh we got it wrong and and the sort of the internal struggle they have like oh well i'm supposed to be at home and you're supposed to be at work and how they they bring that to a change and it's 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 nuanced it's human it's beautiful like it's really really well executed on yeah, and I think honest is is the the great description of it because I was laughing, but it absolutely resonated with me. Yeah. Um, in terms of conversations I've had with my wife as we talk about our roles, and um, you know, we we you know how much you want to push against the stereotype, but also at what point do you need to just you know say this is what we are right now, right? <laughs> like, uh, and and you know, even something like um like that kind of honesty, I think would resonate whether it's like I I want to follow a certain diet, but you know what, I'm going to I, I just really want to eat this oreo or whatever it may be yeah. or you know in this case what you know what we're seeing is you know i want to be a strong independent woman uh but i i also want my wedding day to i want to feel like a princess on my wedding day and she ends up feeling princess leia which is a little bit of a swerve <laughs> from <laughs> from what you expect for that um you know and uh, it's just um again finding the comedy in that internal contradiction that does not feel forced or for the sake of a narrative i think sometimes when you say a character uh, motivation is contradictory it's because uh it feels like it's only there to reach the the point in the story that you're trying to reach yeah and the thing is, I, I think that's a place where writers can really easily misstep. Because um, if if you've set up, you know, the, the hero's only motivation is that he wants to win the Pokemon tournament. And so he's going and going and going. And then he does something where, oh, I'm going to give up the victory for the Pokemon tournament so that I can win over Misty's heart. I think she's a character in the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, then you need you need a really good explanation of why that has happened and and that is where 
I think stories happen. That's where character arcs happen. But unless you're up to the task of explaining it, they, they need to go after their goal or it's, you're lying about what their goal is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think with Liz Lemon, we do hit that really well. Her, um, her relationship with feminism and what it means to her is a strong theme throughout the show. And I think the episode with Chris is definitely brings that to a beautiful head where I think she doesn't compromise her principles, but she explores the lateral movement available within them. Yes. And I, I think that's also not just in, in terms of representing Liz as a character and letting us see into uh, who she is. I think it's also acknowledging um, that, that with, these uh, political movements or social movements or social issues. Um, if, if you start to view it as like a monolith that there's only one way to be, you know, yeah. a feminist or whatever it is, you're, you're going to be excluding people and, and a wider umbrella is good <laughs> for, for, for all those movements. And I, I, I mean that for all ends of the political spectrum. Sometimes I think yeah. we, we end up uh, you, you see movements that kind of limit uh, what participation within that movement must, must mean for, for anyone who's engaged with it. How'd you like my Pokemon analogy, though? I went with a property I knew really well. Could you tell? <laughs> I am uh, learning about Pokemon because I, I, I never had Pokemon in my life, but my my young boys are all in on Pokemon right now. So I, I believe Misty is a character in the series of Pokemon that was around when we were teenagers, but it is she, she was not in the one that's on Netflix. That they Well, I mean, I think that one is on Netflix, but they mo- watched one called Pokemon Journeys, and I don't think Misty was there. So, yeah, you're welcome for the thousands of new subs you get of younger viewers coming in for Pokemon content. Yeah, and looking for it in the Liz Lemon episode. <laughs> yes, as, <laughs> as one should. Yeah, we, one thing we know how to do on this, uh, on this podcast is properly uh, cross-pollinate our audiences. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the relationship between Liz and Jack, you mentioned that these episodes didn't really highlight it. Um, I definitely felt that it was in a very different place in season seven versus the earlier episodes that I saw, but I wasn't able to really put my finger on it because the, the episode is about her and Chris and, you know, her wedding. It's not about her and Jack right. at all. The, the one that I happened to watch. So what, how would you define that relationship? Because at least in my passing familiarity with this, with this show, um, Tina Fey and Alec Baldwin were like the names that or that relationship is the one that I knew a lot of comedy was coming from. I also knew like Tracy Morgan was, uh, you know, was his his own character, and it, it felt like he was often off in his own world, <laughs> at least in the episodes that I was watching. Whereas the Liz and Jack dynamic was a little more centered on the show. Is that accurate to say? I'm so sorry. I started googling a quote to try and define their relationship for you because there's mm-hmm. one from the show itself. But then yeah. I admit. I, I didn't hear the last two sentences you said. Oh, I, so I said, uh, just with my passing familiarity with the show, I knew, uh, you know, Tracy, Tracy Morgan is on it, but it felt like he was, uh, less a part of the, the Liz and Jack relationship. He was kind of off on his own side adventures. Yes. And that's kind of what I saw when I watched these three episodes, you know, in advertising and other things that there was a sense I often had. Uh, and it seems like one of the core relationships for the series, if you're going to look across the evolution, it would be Liz and Jack. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I would say that is the, the beating heart of the show is the Jack Liz relationship. Um, I, so I have a theory that I'm going to publish in a paper that will be published widely on my Facebook page someday um, mm-hmm. that in ensemble comedy, pretty much every 
every episode of, of an ensemble comedy show can be described as the power struggle between two or more characters. Um, and it's really interesting on 30 Rock in particular because the characters, when they have their power struggles, are at such different levels of power. Like from, from a perspective of, of privilege, of wealth, of experience, um, there's no question that Jack Donaghy is more powerful than Liz Lemon. But when they have their power struggles with each other, they, they sort of bring their own attributes to bear in that struggle. Um, and that's, I'm oversimplifying it, but the reason I bring that up is why? Why did I bring that up? <laughs> oh, no, I don't remember. Oh, yes, no, it is. Okay, so um, like all proper relationships at the center of a comedy, they fight a lot. Um, and I would say ballparking at something 25% to 33% of the episodes are about Liz and Jack fighting for control over some aspect of their lives. Um, and there's one where they have to go to therapy, um, like company ordered therapy to, to sort out their problems. And the quote that I was unable to find that I, I so rudely turned away from you to look for um, was where Jack describes Liz as, I think it's his like subordinate friend. And then she <laughs> describes Jack as her um, boss slash work husband. Um, and I, kn I know I've destroyed that quote. Um, and one thing the show actually plays with a lot is um, the audience, I think, on your first watch review, you expect those two characters to get together romantically. Um, and the show plays with that expectation. They never do, which I think it would have been a terrible mistake if they did. Um, but the show really plays with that expectation quite a lot, um, where they do... I don't know. They they seem like they're really good friends who bring very different skill sets and backgrounds to bear. And that really serves as an engine for a lot of comedy and a lot of plot development. And, and I think for me, um, if, if you're going to have a long running sitcom, you do need some relationship. That's kind of the spine on which the show hangs, I agree. you know, whether, I fully agree. whether it's the, uh, you know, Niles and Daphne and Frasier, or I mean, Sam and Diane initially in Cheers, but then Sam and everyone <laughs> in, <laughs> in the latter years, where it kind of becomes much more of a true ensemble, uh, you know, on Cheers, or, um, you know, Jim and Pam in, in, in The Office. It's that that's where um, the emotional investment is going to land for you to want to come visit this fun place, right? Like, like any show can make the fun place that's going to make you laugh. Yeah. But I think the emotional, emotional investment where you feel the need to revisit it is going to come from some long form relationship. And it does not have to be a romantic one. I, I think one thing is many of those relationships I listed were romantic ones. I, I think it doesn't have to be that romantic relationship. And it sounds like 30 rock successfully pulls it off with a non-romantic, right. uh, you know, uh, heterosexual relationship, right? <laughs> yeah, well, and it, it's a crutch I understand because romantic relationships come with uh, inherently higher stakes and a lot of built-in tension. And so I, I get it, but it also makes me respect that much more that 30 Rock stays away from it, at least in the, the main two leads. Mm -hmm. um, are there... I. I I'm not familiar enough with the side characters. Are there any side characters that you want to make sure we, we shout out in terms of uh, their significance to the show or the quality of the comedic acting or the writing for the, for the characters? Um, I have an acting crush on Jane Krakowski who plays Jenna Maroney. Mm -hmm. um, I've only seen her in this and um, 
uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, where she plays effectively the same character, but she is, is superb at portraying that character. <laughs> Um, I believe she was we recently did an episode on uh, the thrilling adventure hour, and I believe she was one of the standards. Uh, you know, she, she got pulled into the thrilling adventure hours of voice voice work for a narrative podcast, nice. uh, co- comedic narrative podcast. So that I I knew her from that more so than 30 Rock. I also do know her from the excellent carpool karaoke with Lynn Manuel Miranda. Oh, um, that aired during a, a Tony Award uh, that uh, James Corden was was hosting the Tonys, and he did a carpool karaoke with starting with just Lin Manuel, Manuel Miranda, and then they pull in other uh, uh, Broadway stars. And Jane Krakowski is one of the ones that get pulled in. So if you're looking for a laugh uh, and some excellent singing, pull up Carpool Karaoke with Lin Manuel. Yeah, Miranda. she has pipes. She is a fantastic singer. Um, and anyone else besides Jane Krakowski? And, and what is her character's name? <laughs> I, uh, Jenna Maroney. Sorry, I don't know this show as well. <laughs> so. uh, it's Jenna Maroney, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I do think Tracy Morgan does a really strong performance as well. Um, he uh, He's a very good... He's very good at using his body in his acting, mm-hmm. um, particularly his face, but he he's very invested in his character and he does a really good job of movement and and emoting, I guess. Um, I think honorable mention to Judah Friedlander uh, because he really seems gross. Uh, sorry, the one who plays Frank, the long-haired, greasy writer. Uh huh. Yes, um, the, and that, that's one that, like, as soon as I saw him, I knew exactly what stereotype that character was filling. But also, it felt right to have him in a sketch writer's room. <laughs> yes. Well, I've been in a couple sketch writers' rooms, and uh, bullseye. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say, no, no, that's not what it's like. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that's what I meant. Sorry, everyone who's been in the sketch writer's room with me. Um, okay. I want to launch two fan theories. This is the part of the podcast where we launch fan theories, right? Well, we just, uh, the day we're recording this, we just dropped an episode about fan theories. So as far as um, my mindset, because I just typed up the... <laughs> the preview for that episode and posted it yes absolutely we always okay, talk about sure. fan theories this is going to post weeks after that so for our listeners it's gonna be like oh i remember they talked about fan theories a month ago but it's fresh in your mind yeah okay um okay so my first fan theory uh liz lemon was born biologically male um and through some misunderstanding or whatever was raised uh female and uh here's my support um the when a character comes says liz you're a woman she goes yeah that doctor didn't know what he was talking about and then at another point when she does something impressive uh jack says bravo lemon and she says you're supposed to say brava to a woman and he says i'm well aware of that and then of course her inability to conceive is uh well explored on the show which someone who's biologically male wouldn't be able to second theory this is my low-hanging fruit Kenneth was obviously based on a Mormon. I, uh, I've only seen these, these episodes and yes, <laughs> like yeah. the, the Oshock stereotype Mormon, right? Yeah. And they do. It's not even a fan theory. The show gets into the fact that Kenneth is an immortal being who has existed forever. Wait, uh, what? <laughs> yeah. It's, I don't think that's even mentioned how, in any of the episodes. So when, how he, broad does this show's world become? Uh, it's <laughs> Kenneth is something well they have another another character named hazel was her name and uh she also has a a decorated past 
Um, but yeah, no. But the thing is, that's not a fan theory. The show explicitly tells you that Kenneth is some sort of angelic creature who has been around since the beginning of time. Um, and is working as a personal assistant in an NBC comedy writer's room. Yeah. Okay. Because he loves <laughs> TV that much. <laughs> is that his character's thing? He loves TV. Yeah. And then he has, this is another reading rainbow moment, but he has a very satisfying end to his art. So reading rainbow, read it, go watch it. <laughs> um, I don't know the show well enough to offer any fan theories or to really comment on your fan theories. You're, you're outside my, my areas of expertise. Yeah. I, well, really the reason I, I pitch them is I want people to find more evidence of um, Liz Lemon being treated as masculine and to send it to me so that we can build our cohesive fan theory. Cause right now my theory is pretty weak. You have two lines to support it. Uh, it was three. Well, no. Okay. Two lines and one plot device. Okay. <laughs> right. Um, let's see. And she can grow a mustache, As... but a lot of women can do that. So. Yes. That's, uh, uh, yeah. I don't know that that's going to be full support <laughs> there. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's like, it's ancillary evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think if you were going to try and say what makes this special, this comedy special and stand out in the era of TV sitcom that's ever been made, you can find streaming somewhere, even if you have to pay for it, I guess, but you can find access to it. What would make 30 Rock be one that you stand out and you point to someone and say, you should watch 30 Rock? Uh, the reason you should watch 30 Rock is particularly if you're interested in the writing process. Uh, she's a character who is a writer and in my opinion is portrayed realistically as a writer. Um, there's, there's very little namby pamby up in the clouds nonsense about writing. She's very much a down to earth professional writer. Um, and I think that's portrayed very accurately. It is. Cause it's competing with all the shows that are on now. Like, would I watch it for the good place? No. But you finished The Good Place, so it's time to <laughs> watch something else. I mean, after you re- we go back and watch The Good Place. Yeah, after your second watch of The Good Place, <laughs> then 30 Rock is right there for you. Um, yep. Um, I, I think it's interesting that what you said about the how accurate this feels to the writing process. Because mm-hmm. I think there is a tendency for writers to self-mythologize the act of writing. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and, and that's not like a new thing. Like famously, the romantics, you know, in the, in the 1800s were promoting the idea of like being touched by the muse while they were in hazes and just the words pouring out of them to kind of like elevate them and separate them from the common people who couldn't be the writers. Right. And, then, and then almost inevitably we find out any writer who said that uh, when we get access to their papers after they die, there's drafts and drafts of the things they said they wrote <laughs> in one night when it just came to right. them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and they were mythologizing, you know, that, that version. And then, and then one reason why Poe had, you know, had feuds with some, some other romantic writers of the era is he, he wrote, uh, you know, the theory of composition where he laid down that it's like, it's all about revision and work. <laughs> this is what the writing process is. I'm like, no, Poe, get on board. We're telling them that it's it's all about our specialness. You're, you're ruining the conspiracy, uh, man. <laughs> and, and well, and even as recently, I, I heard a podcast recently that was talking about uh, Kurt Cobain with uh, Nirvana that um, an- another singer-songwriter said, like, I, I, heard, I saw interviews with him where he said, like, sometimes you just step up to the mic and whatever came out is what came out. I was like, oh my goodness, I am so out of my league. And then after he, his tragic 
you know, death, uh, his journals were published. He's like, wait, that those are like versions of those lyrics all over, like uh, scribbled in the sides of his yeah. journals. Um, you know, those, those were being worked on. <laughs> um, and, and so for, a, you know, for a someone who was known as a writer on SNL, uh, you know, writer and performer to come over and make a show about writing. I think there'd be uh, an impulse at least to kind of mythologize, you know, the the creative spirit uh, that, that's necessary to be yeah. successful um, in in this and to instead just do kind of a nuts and bolts. It's, you know, it, it's throwing out ideas. It's rejecting ideas. It's revising the ideas that you think are good enough to take the time to revise. Um, you know, that that's something that uh, is more true to what writing actually is, but often is not the version that we get painted. Well, for and there's this tendency, especially in um, short form comedy. So stand up sketch comedy, there's this tendency to be very self deprecating, which, which is fine. It works. It gets laughs whatever. But I think, and, well, if you're if you're gonna be punching in any direction, punching towards yourself is always a better move for a comedian than punching right, at another right, group. Yeah. I think. And um, with Thirty Rock, it comes back to the honesty that we were talking about, where I don't think it throws sketch writers under the bus, but it doesn't sugarcoat the process either. Um, and and I think especially well. It does kind of, Frank is kind of throwing sketch writers under the bus, but, uh, but with Liz herself, she's not, but well, with some honesty, yeah. as you noted. <laughs> but with Liz herself, she's portrayed as a, a competent professional, you know? Um, but there's not, there's no, as you say, there's no touching her muse or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or you know, just the, you, the 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 ideas arrive fully formed, and they're just a, a vehicle for the ideas. Right. No, it's like you, you sit down and work. She and that's had how you get to writing. draft fart doctor several times. <laughs> um, is, is there? Um, do Do you think this one stands out for when it was made? Uh, that that early two thousands period of comedy where um we're we're kind of transitioning away from. I mean, not completely disappearing, but away from the the three or four camera sitcom setup, which had been the dominant form of the the eighties and nineties, and now into uh, single camera. And this one is single camera, but it's not. You know, it, it's a little different than you know the office style of single camera right. or Modern Family style single camera, right? So the thing about the early two thousands is that you know, we have sort of this transition period and don't correct me if this is historically wrong, where we're moving from episodic shows to more serial based shows because we've got um, streaming services and becoming more common way to watch shows. Is that timeline correct? Maybe possibly, but in any case, 30 rock has a shocking number of callback jokes, like more than you'd expect. Arrested Development is, in my mind, the king of the callback jokes. But uh, with with Thirty Rock, there's uh, look, it doesn't it doesn't dethrone Arrested Development, but it it still has a large number of jokes that keep coming back and then come back in unexpected ways and punchlines that are delivered before jokes and stuff like that. So it's 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 a delight to watch and rewatch. It's it's a very warm show, and I think a lot of that comes from Tina Fey's vulnerability in the writing. Um, and it's just, it's, it's like hanging out with your friends. It's like original series, Star Trek. You don't watch it because of its tight plotting. You watch it because you're hanging out with a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> you don't watch that one for like the cohesive world building from one episode to the next. Cause they always remember what happened last week. 
Yeah. <laughs> no, I like, I, and, and that's what I think some of the best shows that become the comfort background shows. It is about that feeling that you just described of like, Hey, I want to, I want to hang out with my friends again. Yeah. Um, that's one that, so, so having written a book on cheers and a book on Frasier, like afterwards I took a long break before I could revisit the shows because <laughs> I had just lived with them for so long while writing yeah. it. And then, um, it was last Thanksgiving. I was like, you know, they both had some good Thanksgiving episodes. I should watch those. And immediately I was like, I should be watching these all the time. Why have I not had these on? <laughs> <laughs> and so if 30 Rock could reach that like level of like, I just want to go revisit my friends. Then it is a top tier comedy <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, no. And it, it adds, I think comfort shows a great description for it. All right. Well, thank you, Kevin, for asking to do an episode on Liz Lemon. So I got introduced to 30 Rock. I look forward to uh, digging in some more and watching some more of this series. That is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us, listeners. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. You can reach us by emailing feedback at ProtagonistPodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at Protagonist protagonist pod or at jay dorowski and our producer andrew is at dis minute and our facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast and there's also a dueling genre discord channel that you can visit to have uh chats with all of the dueling genre podcast hosts kevin is there anything you would like to plug so yeah i've got two sketch comedy youtube channels and here's the fun thing if you type in their exact name, they won't show up. <laughs> but uh, if you look for the darn sketch comedy on Facebook, I believe we are the first result. It's a pink and green logo. And it and is the darned sketch comedy, not the, the darn sketch, sketch comedy. comedy, right? <laughs> yeah, the darned, because it's a play on the damned, because we do clean comedy. So we would never say damn. Mm hmm. As you, in that explanation, you just made that very clear. <clears throat> oh, no. <laughs> um we're we're looking at launching our r-rated channel the damned <laughs> um no no we will never do that because we're all very prudent um but yeah so find us on facebook and that will point you to our youtube channel because youtube will not so it seems like an ideal use of the youtube algorithm that you can search oh, for and the my exact other channel and not find uh, it. you'll never find you'll just never find it <laughs> okay so if you can find it you get a prize friend me on facebook all right. Then well, I'll point you there. thank you, Kevin, for coming on to talk about Liz Lemon. Thank you, listeners, for downloading this episode. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. The side character. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. I'll give Andrew a fresh edit there on that comment. <laughs>